Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And looking to the words of 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 through 25. I want to preach a message I've entitled, The Unique Nature of God's Word. The Unique Nature of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, before I expound on the truths given to us in verses 23 through 25, I want to quickly point out how many times Peter has mentioned what God has done to bring salvation to His people, the blessings that are in Christ, and the singular focus of God's undeserved grace within this first chapter. At the outset of his letter, in verses 1 and 2, Peter affirms that those who are in Christ have been elected, individually chosen by God the Father unto salvation. In verses 3 and 4, Peter proclaims that the Father, who has chosen to save His people from their sin, is worthy to praise because He has, through His abundant mercy given spiritual life, a lively hope, an assurance of heaven, and a promise of Christ's preserving grace. Moving on, we read, as Peter mentions, the particular trials God's people are facing in verses 6 through 9. He also highlights the truth that their trials will be used for Christ. Peter, in verses 6 through 9, reminds fellow pilgrims of the faith, that one day they will be with their Savior and assures them that the love that they have for Christ in their hearts is a love that brings true joy even in the midst of darkness. In verses 10 through 12, we find that Peter wants God's people to recognize that the gospel message they have come to believe is the same message that was preached by the prophets. In his exhorting believers to walk in holiness, in verses 13 through 16, Peter does so in the light of Jesus' soon return and the holy nature of God the Father. In verses 17 through 21, Peter references the sobering truth that there is coming a time in which the God of heaven and earth will judge every man according to his works which ought to provoke God's people to serve God with reverence and godly fear. 
And following this truth, Peter reminds believers that they have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And within this declaration, Peter once again highlights the truth that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world to save his people and that God in his grace hath birthed them into his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I want you to note is the fact that we are only 22 verses in 1 Peter chapter 1. And already God the Father is specifically mentioned or referred to no less than six times. God the Son is specifically mentioned or referred to no less than 13 times. God the Holy Spirit is specifically mentioned or referred to no less than two times. And the work of salvation is mentioned or referenced in some way, essentially in every other verse. And by a simple glance of the individual words spoken by Peter within the entirety of chapter 1, you will find the words, Jesus Christ, God, Father, Holy Spirit, salvation, faith, glory, hope, and grace. These words are mentioned over and over and over again. And the specific truth I want to cement on the forefront of your mind in light of this is the need to recognize that the Christian faith and the Christian message is and ought to be focused supremely on the triune God. Did you hear what I just said? I said the Christian faith and the Christian message is and ought to be fixated on the salvation God brings about through the redemption of Jesus Christ through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that we know this, but I think it's needful for me to remind you of it over and over and over again, because the apostles do. The Christian life is not about us. It's about God. The Bible and the message of the Bible is not about how we can have our best life now. It's about the sovereign creator giving grace to undeserving sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The purpose and function of our fellowship, the fellowship of the church, is not about making business contacts simply hanging out with friends who are more moral in nature, or being entertained by various social activities. The purpose of Christ's church, the purpose of our gathering this morning, is about worshiping the triune God. Do you see? Our supreme focus, our mind, our heart, our attention, our time, our activities, ought to be wrapped up in God. And this is Peter's desire of God's people. He wants them to think of God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy. He wants them to rejoice in Jesus' love and the hope that he brings. He wants them to ponder what Christ has done for them in the past, 
what Christ is doing for them in the present and what Christ has promised to do for them in the future. You see, Peter knows that we as humans, even sinners saved by grace, are prone to wander. We're prone to forget. We're prone to become fixated on the problems of this life. Peter knows that during times of trial and trouble, we as finite humans are disposed to feel sorry for ourselves. We are prone to focus on our problems, our pain, our losses, on that which we don't have and how things used to be in the good old days. So as a spiritual preventative and as a remedy of succumbing to such feelings, Peter is persistently urging God's people to fix their minds on God. And let me just say here that I'm persuaded by this text and many others that this is the primary function of true ministers of God. And this is the primary food true sheep want to feast upon when they gather together. The primary function of true pastors and true preachers is to preach about God. Not politics, not ecclesiastic preferences, not constant complaints about how bad things are in the world, not continually reprimanding those who differ from us who are no longer in the fellowship, not self-focused random comical stories that pertain to nothing, not some self-effort motivational message of do better and try harder. No, God's sheep expect God's ministers to preach messages of God's love, God's grace, God's faithfulness, Christ's tenderness, Christ's willingness to save, Christ's ability to keep. You see, the primary function of true under-shepherds is to uplift and magnify the work of the Good Shepherd. And likewise, Christ's true sheep want the under-shepherd to feed them Bible truths that are about God. Look, let's just set things in the realm of reality for a moment. You and I both know by personal experience that from Sunday to Sunday we are engaged in war. From Sunday to Sunday, you are striving to fight the good fight of faith. From Sunday to Sunday, you are being pulled by the world, tempted by the devil, and harassed by the flesh. Am I wrong? And then often when Sunday comes, it is not unlikely for God's sheep to come to church feeling spiritually beat up discouraged, frustrated, annoyed, anxious, full of doubt and worry regarding what is going to take place in the week to come. So then the question becomes, what do the sheep need and what do the sheep want when they come to the house of God? I'll tell you what they need and I'll tell you what they want. They need and want messages about God. They need to be reminded 
that God is in control. God is with them. God can help them. God can use their troubles for good. God holds the hearts of kings in his hands and God will faithfully preserve his sheep. What I'm trying to say is we need to get back to the fundamental truth that the Christian life, the Christian message, and the Christian church is all about God's work in Christ. What Christians need more than anything in this life is a constant diet of those themes that center around, center around and are rooted in God's saving grace. And in this epistle of 1 Peter, Peter starts with the assumption that Christian people want to hear more about their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ is their life. Christ is their joy. Christ is their source of hope. Christ is their source of strength. Christ is their peace. Christ is their closest friend. And he's their soul's satisfaction. Now tied in with the believer's desire and need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ is their estimation, their appreciation of, and their affiliation with God's holy word. Now looking to verses 23 through 25, Peter unites the believer's relationship with God with their relationship and their regard for God's Word. In a very real way, Peter is showing that the way to know God is through His Word. The practical way in which we can fix our mind on God is through fixing our mind on God's Word. So in his continuance of pointing the sheep, God's people, to God, Peter gives three unique characteristics Of God's word. Notice them with me beginning in verse 23. Peter says, Being born again, or better translated, you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So here we have in our first point the saving power of God's word as Peter continues to point discouraged. Weak, failing sheep to the good shepherd. He wants them to remember the saving power of God's word. Peter says, in your thinking of God and his work of salvation, in your consideration of all that God is and has done in your life, it is needful for you to reflect upon the saving power of God's word, specifically how it brought you to faith in Christ. Peter says, you have been born again. You have been birthed by God. You have been given spiritual life, not through anything that is earthly or of a decaying nature, speaking specifically of human seed. No, you have been born again by the eternal spiritual word of God, which contains the soul-saving power of the gospel message. Now, I want to pause right here and personally echo Peter's point regarding the saving power of God's Word. This book we call the Bible 
This book containing 66 books known as the Holy Scriptures. This book we refer to as the Word of God is a spiritual book. It is a living book. It is a book like no other book. This book has the ability to read you. This book has the ability and power to cut you, convict you, counsel you, and comfort you all at once. No other book has the ability to do that. This book that we call the Bible has the ability to give you spiritual life. In fact, this book is described as a spiritual seed that has a unique germinating power. This book is described as spiritual water that is able to purify your soul. This book is referred to as a sword that cuts, as a fire that burns, as a mirror that exposes you of who you are. It is a light that shines, a hammer that shatters our pride and misconceptions. This book is milk. This book is meat. This book is bread that nourishes. And it is the voice of God that calls sinful men to be reconciled to a holy God. The Old Testament and the New Testament are God's two lips through which He speaks to man. And if you are in Christ this morning, you know that what Peter is saying is true because you've experienced its power in your own life. Whereas before you came to faith in Christ, you ignored the Word of God. You resisted its teaching and preaching. You did everything you could to avoid it. Nevertheless, when God in His grace caused you to hear it, to read it, to think about it and understand its meaning and its application for you, it awakened you and showed you your desperate need of salvation. Listen, this is the power of God's holy word. When, co- when one comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when they are born again, the Holy Spirit, who is the author of the word of God, the Holy Spirit uses His Word to reveal what God has done for sinners. The Holy Spirit enlightens us to the light of the world, Jesus Christ Himself. Paul says it this way, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How did we come to have faith in Christ? Through the revelation of Scripture. That's point number one. The saving power of of God's word. This word has a distinct power about it. The second unique characteristic of God's word that Peter desires God's people to recognize is its sustaining permanence. Its sustaining permanence. Verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Peter says this word that has caused you to be born again is not only powerful, it is eternal. It is permanent. 
It endures not only for a time, but forever. And by way of building upon his exhortation, Peter gives us an illustration. Peter says, all flesh is as grass. Now, pausing here, just so everyone knows, grass is a green plant that naturally grows out of the earth's surface outside of the desert. Grass. Blades of grass. We're all familiar? Okay. Peter says, all flesh, all humanity as a whole is like grass. It grows for a time and then is cut down. Likewise, the glory of men, speaking of man's strength, man's wealth, man's wisdom is like the flower that sometimes grows in the field. It's there for a moment and then withers or fades away. But Peter says, the word of the Lord is not so. As it pertains to God's word and the truths written therein, unlike the grass and unlike the flowers of the field that are cut down and wither away in time, the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord will always be. In this changing world, filled with disappointments and death, the word of the Lord will prove to be the only constant in life. And what an encouragement this specific point is to a group of persecuted people who have been dealing with one change after another change after another change. Think about it. The people Peter is writing to have lost their livelihood. They've lost their homes. They've been driven to new communities. They're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And in the midst of all these constant changes, Peter comes along by guidance of the Holy Spirit and reminds them that in the midst of all these disappointment, in the midst of all these changes, one thing is certain. God's word can be fully relied upon. Though this world changes, though opinions change, though bank accounts change, though you change, God's word endures forever. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. It's permanent. That which has been true will always be true because it's comes from God, who is truth. It was inspired by the Spirit of truth, who lives and bides forever. Man has tried to dismiss this book. Man has tried to destroy this book. Man has sought to keep it from being distributed. And yet, here it is, guiding us, comforting us, encouraging us, and reminding us of who God is, what God has done for us in Christ and what God will do for us in the future, this book tells us what God expects of us in this life. The sustaining permanence of God's word. There's nothing else in this life that has such sustaining power as the word of God. Now, the third unique characteristic Peter emphasizes regarding God's holy word is its superlative precept. 
Having mentioned something of the saving power of God's Word and the sustaining permanence of God's Word, Peter concludes by noting its superlative precept, meaning its supreme doctrine, its greatest message. Notice what Peter says in the second half of verse 25. And this, this is the Word which by the gospel is preached unto you. What Peter is explicitly referencing is the gospel message that has been preached to them from the Old Testament scriptures. Now, two things to keep in mind here as Peter makes this statement. First, the believers Peter is addressing did not have the New Testament scriptures. The New Testament scriptures were still being written. Proof, Peter's writing 1 Peter. Second, Peter's references about the word enduring forever and man being like grass and flowers fading away are references from the prophets, specifically the book of Isaiah. And the essence of what Peter is saying is the sum and substance of the word is the gospel. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The whole of scripture is about one message, how sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God through the atonement of Jesus Christ. The core teaching of the Bible contains the truth that man is a sinner and he cannot save himself, but God in Christ has made a way whereby sinful man can be forgiven of his sin. You see, it's through the powerful, permanent word It's through the writings of Moses and the prophets that you and I come to know God savingly. It's all about Christ. It's all about His person, His work, His promise to redeem. From Genesis to Revelation, God's Word is about God accomplishing His will and saving His people. Peter wants his readers to glory in this truth. Peter wants them to to be drawn to Christ through His Word, through this Word that is about the Word. And can I note also that Peter mentions that this Word, containing the saving message of the Gospel, has been preached unto them. Notice it. Peter does not say this Word has been fashioned into music for them. Peter does not say this Word has been entertainingly produced in a drama to them. Peter does not say that this word is the word that has been discussed or debated among them. He says this word is a word through which the gospel has been preached or proclaimed, declared to you. Now I'm bringing this up once again on purpose by way of showing you from Scripture the importance and permanent preeminence of preaching. Sadly, we live in a day that despises preaching. We live in a day that wants music, entertainment, drama, skits, movies, anything but preaching. Because preaching is viewed as old-fashioned. Preaching is viewed as out of touch with reality. Preaching is looked at as too offensive, too in-your-face, too personal, too extreme. Say what you will, but the text declares to me that God has ordained preaching, the unapologetic declaration of God's truth as a means 
that God has appointed. And if anyone knows the effectiveness of preaching, surely it's Peter himself. Now, don't forget that it was Peter who lifted up his voice on the day of Pentecost and pressed truths on the hearts of the people. Hard truths. You, personal, Peter says, have crucified the Messiah. You, by your sinfulness, have caused the righteous one to die. And through that preaching, the Holy Spirit cut their hearts and caused them to cry out and ask the question of all questions. What can we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and believe and you will be saved. And gloriously, 3,000 were saved under Peter's preaching. You see, Peter wasn't interested in lecturing with a PowerPoint. He wasn't interested in conversing. He wasn't interested in having a dialogue. He wasn't interested in sharing his story or teaching academic truths that rest in the mind. Peter was set on pressing truths on people's consciences so that he might wake them out of their spiritual slumber. Peter was sent of Jesus Christ, the preacher of all preachers, the one who preached with authority, to be a preacher. Oh, my dear friends, preaching ought to be viewed as the preeminent ministry of the church. It ought to be the greatest priority of preachers and pastors. The gospel is to be preached. And it is through the preaching that God has done His greatest work throughout history. I don't say this because I'm a preacher. I say this because it's the truth of God's Word. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to do what? To juggle? To put on an act? To these heathen sinners? To tell them that everything's okay? No, God sent Jonah to preach, to expose their wickedness against God. And then come alongside and to show that God is a God of grace and mercy who delights to save sinners who repent. Jonah was a preacher. Noah, the Bible says, was a preacher of righteousness. We think of John the Baptist in the wilderness crying out, Look, look, look to the Lamb of God and be saved, be healed of your sins. He was a preacher. And then throughout church history, we have George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. These men preached, they declared truth, they pointed it, and they pressed it on the hearts of others. And through that, multitudes, thousands and tens of thousands came to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, listen, if ever our churches needed a revival, surely at this hour we need a revival in the biblical ordained means of preaching. Despite how unpopular it is, God demands that preachers preach. God desires men who are called of God to get on fire for the Lord and boldly declare, thus saith the Lord, whether people want to hear it or not. We don't need new gimmicks. We don't need to reinvent God's word. 
We don't need to become creative in our evangelistic efforts. We need to stay true, not only to the Bible's message, but to its methods. To its methods. God helping me, so long as I'm your pastor, I will strive to preach. Not just fill your mind with truth, but to press your heart with that truth. I'm going to take the sword as the Spirit allows me and seek to cut you open so that I can apply the balm of God's grace so the Spirit can do His perfect work in your heart. So don't despise it. Don't belittle it. Don't think, well, the pastor is too personal, too harsh. I don't sure. We live in this day of tolerance, this day of love, this day of acceptance, this day of feministic qualities where we all just need to get along. We need to have less preaching and more music. That's what we need. That's what the, quote, Asbury revival is all about. There's no preaching there. 85% of it is music, sentimental music that you can sing to your boyfriend or girlfriend. Don't tell me that's a revival. Every great revival has been brought about by the means of strong, courageous, bold, pointed preaching, stripping men and women of their self-righteousness and pointing them to the grace of God in Christ. Peter says, this word is the word through which by the gospel has been preached to you. Well, how was it preached? It was preached through Peter, Paul, Barnabas, Saul, going all throughout the world. And you want to know how popular, how accepting preaching was? Well, just remember that they were stoned, left for dead, thrown in prison, called demons, devils. And there may be come a time where if I preach that there are only two genders, I may be in jail, but so be it. God has from the beginning ordained them to be male and female. Preach. Declare it. Don't falter. Don't fade away. Stand firm. Why? Because this word is firm. It doesn't change. It's been given by God. It's authoritative. So there are the three characteristics of God's wonderful word. We have the superlative precept. What is, what is its message? It's all about Jesus Christ. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. The Proverbs, Song of Solomon, it's about Christ, salvation, God's grace. Remember, it's sustaining permanence, though everything else fades away, though we live in a time of change, though we will go through change in the days to come. One anchor is secure, the permanence of God's word. And then don't forget about its saving power. It's through this word that has brought you to Christ. It's through this word that has caused you to be born again. Now, having established these three unique characteristics of God's word, let me practice what I preach by concluding with five quick points of application. In light of the fact that God's word is powerful, permanent, and predominantly about Christ's saving grace, you need to do these five things. Number one, you need to believe it. That's first and foremost. 
Specifically, I mean you need to receive its message as true. If you are lost, if you're without God and without hope in this world, you need to do what Isaiah says. You need to seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. Because it's by the reading of God's word that God enlightens your understanding. You need to let its message show you your sinful, hopeless condition. And you need to allow this word to show you your desperate need of Jesus Christ. That's application number one. Believe it. Believe it. Receive it. Gladly for the salvation of your soul. Application number two, in the light of God's word being authoritative, you need to cherish it. Cherish it. Listen, believer, the Bible ought to be your greatest treasure. It ought to be more precious than money. More costly than silver or gold. It ought to be more desired than your necessary food. You ought to esteem this book, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So is it? Is it cherished? Can others tell that it's cherished? Do you think about it? Do you read it? Do you meditate upon it? If not, why not? If this book has brought you to faith in Christ, how can you not treasure it as the greatest gift you have? It's the love letter sent by God Himself for His bride. How can we cast aside God's love letters for us? Application number three. In the light of God's Word being spiritual, perfect, preserved, and personal. Listen, you need to consume it. It's one thing to treasure it in your heart and mind. It's another thing actually to feast upon it and to taste and see that the Lord is good. This word is bread to be eaten, not bread to be stored away in the bread box, not bread to throw on the dashboard of your car only to wait till the next Sunday. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So I ask, are you feasting upon it daily? Do you long to ingest its truth through church services? If you say the word of God is as it is, why do some of you treat it so casually? How can some of you give lame excuses as to why you can only come to church Once a month to feast on the preaching and teaching of God's word. If you say that this word has brought you to faith in Christ. If you say that this is the living word of God. If you say that this is your only hope of salvation. Then consume it. Long for it. Treasure it. Application number four. In light of God's word being God's word. You need to communicate it. If God's word is powerful, and it is, if it has the ability to change lives, and it does, then we, of all people, ought to be passionate about seeing this word be distributed. Which means, by application, we must be diligent in speaking it to others. We must be purposeful in buying copies of it for others. 
It has the power to change lives. In a very real way, when we distribute the gospel of John booklets, when we are involved in evangelism, we are scattering living seeds that can give others spiritual life. And this is to be the purpose of the church. We are to be lights in this world. We are to be seed sowers. And the seed is the word. We're not responsible to save souls. No man can save a soul. But we are responsible for spreading the seed far and wide so God can take that seed and give life. Finally, application number five. In light of God's word being as it is, we need to pray for the success of its dispersion. To pray for the success of its dispersion. As the seed is spread, we need to pray that God in His grace will allow the seeds to take root so that it will lead to much fruit being produced to the glory of God. Without Him, we can do nothing. It's the Spirit that quickeneth. It's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh provides nothing. People are born again, not through our argumentation, not through our logic, not through our opinions, but through the Word of God. So as we distribute, we need to pray that the Lord of the harvest will see many souls in His harvest. Unless you think that this application has come from my own mind, you can look over to chapter 2. We'll look at next week. Peter gives the application by saying, Wherefore, in light of what I have just told you in chapter 1, in light of what God's word is, wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted, you have tasted in salvation, that the Lord is gracious. So in other words, if you've tasted the Lord is gracious, continue to taste that the Lord is gracious. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on these. How do we stay our mind on God? Right here in the Word. How's your relationship with God's Word? In a very real way, your relationship with God is related to your relationship with God's Word. So I hope that you will receive it as it is. You will cherish it and treasure it and believe it and let its precepts guide you both today and today.